Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nichol. And today on the show, we're talking about blue chip. What was the story there? Now, any of you have been in property investment for a while or who have heard it mentioned the name blue chip will probably be wondering, well, what actually happened there? Well, we've been doing our research and we're going to go through this today. Now, blue chip is a company that fell over back in 2008. It was actually an NZX listed company and they were selling investment properties, but then they fell over. And a lot of people lost money and it's very unfortunate. $85 million is what they owed to property investors, everyday property investors here in New Zealand. And there was a lot going wrong. Andrew, what were the main things? You were actually around back Uh, here. This is the thing. uh, Yeah, actually, I remember this quite clearly. So I was in property investment. I didn't have OPEs at that time. I was running mortgages and I dealt with a lot of investors. Luckily enough, I didn't actually deal with any blue chip clients. Now, just to be clear, they did actually do some successful sales. And I actually have one investor that works with me. And they were one of the lucky few that ended up with an apartment that Blue Chip sold. And it's been a great investment. It's taken a wee while to get there in terms of value, but you know, arguably it's better than nothing. And they still just consider themselves very lucky. Now, Blue Chip were interesting. So they kind of put themselves out there as property coaches. So something like us, they would go out there and say, hey, you need to invest in property because if you don't, you're stuffed when it comes to retirement. Not a bad message. And then what they would do is they would sell big apartment complexes. Now, where it gets a bit murky is the the big complexes that they were selling were their own. So they had an absolute vested interest to sell that product as a great investment. And it's really interesting because what are we, 13 years on now? I'm starting to feel like there's a bit of that going on in the market now. So you see a lot of developers going out there as property coaches and property gurus because they're property developers and it makes me nervous because look, we're absolutely going to tell you what our opinion is to property investment and we're going to hope that people go, yeah, that makes sense and choose to work with us. But we don't care if they don't because it doesn't matter. We're not trying to sell a product. Whereas I guess if you are absolutely trying to peddle something, sometimes that's where you run the risk that you get misleading information. And one of the big things that Blue Chip did, which we're very, very cautious with developers now to make sure that they avoid, is they took deposits. And when I say took deposits, that wasn't just to reserve a build, that was to actually fund the development. So what they might do, and it usually wasn't something like a 10% deposit, it could be like a 20 or a 30% deposit. So they might have an apartment and they say, okay, it's 300,000, you only have to pay 100,000 now and the balance at completion. That 100,000 you need to pay to us and that's going to reserve it. And then what they'd do is they'd use that money to fund the development. Now, when they started to get way ahead of themselves, and what was the description you used of the founder? He liked fast cars. Oh, yes. Evidently, the founder who, or the CEO, guy called Mark Bryas, who very unfortunately went bankrupt as well in 2010, owing a lot of money. And he's just been charged for fraud, funnily enough, in oh. Australia now. So not a good guy, if I can say that. Absolutely. And I try and be Abs- nice. Absolutely fair. What were the descriptions of, of his... He like fast cars, big houses and ladies of the night. Yeah. And so he was this larger than life character. And again, this sounds so familiar for some of the developers that I know going out there, pushing their product, collecting innocent mum and dad's deposits who, again, mum and dad's just want to get ahead in life. And then what happened was when they went under, what it turned out was all that money had been spent. And so there was no recourse and nothing to actually claim against. And just on that as well, there are so many things that were going here that it looks so dodgy in retrospect. The the first thing was that they were hydraulicing prices as well. Now, we haven't talked about this for probably about 300 episodes, so I'll just recap that. 
So what Blue Chip would do is they'd go and purchase all of these properties off a developer. And the developer might sell them for 300k to Blue Chip. They'd then go resell them to investors for $350,000. Now, once you had a couple of those under your belt and you've sold a couple of apartments for $350,000, you then take those to the valuer who might be related to you in some way, not in terms of being your cousin, but in terms of in business. <laughs> and they'd say, oh, rightio, well, the rest of them must be worth $350,000. So you then take those valuations to other investors and say, well, look, the valuer said it was worth $350K. And then that's just accepted that that's what they're worth, even though perhaps similar apartments might be selling for 300k, which was the developer's cost plus the margin. And they used to talk about the fact that they would have these what they call contemporaneous settlements. So I sell to Ed, and the same day Ed sells to Margaret, and on the same day Margaret sells to Sally. And each transaction along the way, we all take a $50,000 uplift in value. Now, there's not really been that uplift in value. We're all just manipulating the market. And so poor lady at the end, was it Sally, ends up with a property that's probably paying way more than what it's actually worth, supported by a dodgy valuation because you could just call up your old friend, the valuer, and give him a bottle of wine and he'd put the number you needed on there. And the interesting thing is we didn't have the same processes as we do today to check these things. So nowadays, if a bank is looking into sale and purchase, they'll look at who the vendor is. So if the vendor says it's Margaret, they'll check the title and see if Margaret's on the title. If she's not on the title, they'll say, well, who owns this property? And there are a lot of legitimate reasons where you have a back-to-back contract. For example, what we see all the time is if I'm Stonewood Homes and I'm selling a house and land package, I probably don't own the land yet. I probably buy it on builder's terms from Robin Hughes and then he's on the title. So when BNZ looks up on the title, it says Robin Hughes because he's the land developer and then I'm selling it as Stonewood Homes to Edward McKnight. That's a legitimate reason. But an illegitimate reason is just hyping up the price and then adding on some extra value. Now, where some property investors became unstuck with all of this is that they were the ones at the end and they were banking on the fact that Margaret's going to come on and buy it off them at a slightly higher price and that it's going to keep on going. And so there are a number of investors who ended up having to purchase. They were forced to purchase these homes because they were the last one holding the sale and purchase agreement, which is very unfortunate. And there was a guy, I think it was Ollie Newland, who went around at the time helping people get out of these or at least attempt to make the best out of a terrible situation. Actually, he worked with the investor that I was thinking of before. I remember them saying that they went to him for some advice and he said, hey, you're too stuck now. You need to see this through. And over time, it will heal itself and go up in value, but you made a bad decision. Now, the interesting thing is that the Serious Fraud Office did not prosecute in the end. And so in 2010, they decided they weren't going to pursue any legal proceedings against some of this, what I can call dodgy behaviour, if I may. And the reason they did that was that they just couldn't figure out a way to compile the evidence and actually get it through. So if the SFO, the Serious Fraud Office, doesn't believe that they've got enough evidence to go through to the High Court and to win the case, then they won't bother proceeding with it. So there are many investors out there who probably still feel quite raw about this because there was no comeuppance. Mark Breyer's really got off pretty lightly with this, went off to Australia, did his new fraud, which he's now being prosecuted for in Australia. I guess that's kind of catching up with him. I certainly hope so. Now, in terms of what the outcome was for the investor, if the project didn't materialise, as Andrew said, they lost their deposit, and if prices were hydraulic, 
if you are settling on this property and you're purchasing what really should be a 300k property for $400,000, then you're a negative equity straight away if you're borrowing at 100%. If you're borrowing all of that money, paying 400k, but actually it's not worth that. And that's the unfortunate thing, which was that the situation with the investors you were working uh, with? Yeah, it was. It was. And again, you know, if they sold it, they would have crystallized those losses. So they might as well just see it through. Though one thing I would say as well, that some dip in the market is to be expected and may be okay. So Absolutely. remember, Andrew, during this time, you settled on a property and yeah. paid more than what it was worth because that's what was your sale and purchase agreement. That yeah. was your contract. Correct. 12 Maple Place, which I still own today. If I had have been in a situation where this had have affected me, I might have sold that property at a loss. But what happened was I signed up for a property in 2000, I think it was 2006, 2007, right before all the world fell down. And I signed up for 395, I think off the top of my head. And when it came to settlement, the valuer said it's now worth 375. Now, it didn't matter to me because I wasn't going to sell it. It was a long-term hold for me. And I'd had enough experience in the industry to know at that stage, it's not about today's value, it's about the future value. And I just kept that property, rented it out, held on to it, and it's been a fantastic rental. But I know that these things can be a little bit scary. And that's why when looking at this, I think, okay, well, there's some things that you can do as an investor to make sure you protect yourself moving forward if you're buying off plans or buying from a developer or something like that. One of the biggest things you can do is get an independent valuation. Get someone in there that knows the market. Forget about all the hype because often you'll go along to a seminar or a conference or something like this or even back in these days they used to sell these properties in malls. Even in Sydney I've been along to some of these things and they're pretty remarkable. You get a whole lot of people in a room, say a thousand people and you know there's only 50 of these units available at today's price and you've got to sign up now, write a check for a thousand dollars right here and now or you're going to miss out. If you sign up for anything, just make sure it's got a due diligence clause in there and a lawyer's approval clause in there and then get your lawyer to check it and it needs to be an independent lawyer. Blue Chip had their in-house lawyer. That's a big red flag for me. And then have an independent valuation. Now, you can't actually get this wrong very easily now because the banks are pretty savvy and they won't accept a valuation ordered by the developer. And even nowadays, they won't even accept it ordered by you in most cases. They need it to go through two centralized systems called logical velocity, where they randomly allocate a valuer. Now, this is a good and a bad thing. It's a good thing in the sense that it, it actually helps avoid these kind of situations. It's a really bad thing because sometimes you might get a really slow valuer who kind of doesn't know this about the market, but because they're on the panel, they get allocated the job, as I had just recently with a personal transaction. Anyway, nonetheless, the good outweighs the bad. So independent valuation, independent lawyer. If you've got a contemporaneous settlement, your lawyer will pick this up or at least have a conversation with you somewhere along the lines, hey, you know the vendor's not actually the person that owns the property now. Now, again, if it's a house and land package, that's probably the explanation, but you need to ask those questions. If you're buying off someone and it's the open market, I get sold a property from Edward Christian McKnight and I look on the title and it's actually Sally Sitwell, then I need to do a bit more research to see what's actually happening there. Is Ed buying a property and applying a margin? Now, it's okay if he is, so long as I know that that's the situation and then I can decide, well, Ed's just happened to go and find a good deal and decided he wants to sell it on to me. So long as you know it's very transparent, then that's okay to accept, but you've just got to make sure you do your independent checks. The final thing, if you're buying off plans and to avoid a blue chip situation, 
is make sure your deposit is held in lawyer's trust account and it needs to be in there until settlement. So you don't want that deposit released to the developer until the building is complete, until you're actually getting what you're paying for. Because if it does get released, and it's funny because despite all these learnings all these years ago, I see all the time contracts where people are having deposits paid to developers. You are asking for trouble here. And I've seen lawyers sign them off as well. It's highly, highly risky. I would not recommend it ever. If a developer can't fund something to completion, then maybe they're not the developer you want doing the job for you. A couple of other things that have changed in the industry now, which are important to be aware of. Generally, most property coaches, whether us or somebody else, they're not the sellers of the properties. Now, if you're talking to an investment consultant who works for a developer, and we won't name and shame here, then that's where you might want to be a little bit careful. But generally, most independent property coaches are not selling properties themselves that they already own. And that's really important because that means that if it doesn't turn out to be a good investment, or the developer, after doing a bit more DD, turns out that they're not necessarily the sort of character you might want to work with. That means that a property coach can walk away and go and find other investment properties. But of course, if they've already purchased them, then they have to sell them and they do have that vested interest. So make sure when you're looking at your sale and purchase agreement, your property coach, if you're getting advice from them, that they're not listed on that sale and purchase agreement. Secondly, make sure that you are dealing with with an actual real estate agent within that process. So one of the things about Blue Chip is they weren't regulated under the REA, the Real Estate Authority. And that meant that there was a lot of regulation that they didn't fall under because it was a private transaction because you were purchasing directly from the person who owned the property. Now, most property coaches these days, they're going to bring in an independent real estate agent that you're going to work through or sign the contract with. And that's important because that means that you're protected under a lot more regulation. Of course, you're going to be using that independent lawyer as well, an independent valuer that's going to be ordered from the bank. And the other thing that's different is that the FMA, the Financial Markets Authority, has a lot of compliance and it's increasing. So much so that we here at Opus Partners have actually just had to take on a compliance manager, full-time compliance manager. You wouldn't believe that in a small company of 50 people you'd need a full-time compliance manager, but we've got it because it's necessary because of the increasing regulation. And look, as much as I complain about it, it's very necessary because nobody wants to come back and have another situation like this where dodgy dealings were happening and very unfortunately, mum and dad investors lost a lot of money. And we all want to avoid a situation where that happens again. And the last thing that's really changed is that property coaches generally out there in the market only ever talk about the long term. So one of the places that really fell down here are investors who were thinking that they'd quickly sell something and they'd make a quick 50 grand because they bought it and sold it to someone else. Look, I think any short-term gains like this are a fool's errand. And that you've got to make sure that you are thinking for the long term. So I'd be wary of any property coach or property investor that's coming and telling you that they're going to help you make a quick buck really, really quickly. If you're going to make quick money in real estate, it's probably going to be because you're flipping and you're putting in a lot of hard work and managing your costs very wisely. And look, the last thing, of course, is you can make up your own mind as to the honesty and credibility of Andrew Nickel or whichever managing director or principal of any property coaching business you're working with. But look, that is the wrap up of Blue Chip and exactly what happened there. There were a lot of lessons that the industry has learned. There's a lot of lessons there that the government's learned as well. And a lot that we need to be aware of as property investors to make sure that we don't repeat those mistakes of the past by dealing with businesses that have a vested financial interest in a transaction. Transaction and who aren't giving you other independent advice as well. 
Hey, look, let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, if you want to learn more about property with Andrew and I, come along to our webinar, 16th of February at 7pm. We're going head to head. We're having a debate. And we're going to debate, Andrew and I, whether you should invest in small towns or in main centres. It's going to be a lot of fun. Links in the show notes. Tap or swipe over the cover art or just go to opuspartners.co.nz. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicole. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.